0: Revelation chapter 18 verse 9. We'll read down to the end of the chapter this morning and it says, And the kings of the earth, who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament her, when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. For no man buyeth their merchandise any more, the merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all <coughs> fine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of precious, most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odours and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil And find flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lasted after are departed from thee. And all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee. And thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. And saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, "'What city is like unto this great city?' And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, "'Alas, alas, the great city!' Wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour is she made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall the great city of Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman and whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a great millstone shall be heard no more at all in, at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of, and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth... For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all that was slain upon the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word this morning, and we pray now that our hearts would be receptive to your word. That as your spirit tries to teach us, Lord, your truths and your ways, that we would be willing to accept those truths, that we would humble ourselves under your truth and under your mighty hand, That our lives might be changed by the reading of your word and by the preaching thereof. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless me now. You bless me that I might preach the word truly to my brothers and sisters here. That I might not hold back. Or that I might preach the whole counsel of God to them. And I pray that uh, we might lead this place more challenged to live for you. More uh, understanding of your ways. Lord, and I just pray that your name might be glorified as we continue to grow in the love and grace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I pray this in his precious name. Amen. In chapter 17, we read of God's judgment upon the spiritual um, uh, or the false religion uh, that is known as Babylon. Babylon represented the false religion of the end of the age. And if you remember, we spoke about this Antichrist coming into the world. And what he manages to do is to bring the whole world under two main systems. Okay, The one system of religion, which is Babylon, represented by Babylon. And with that, and associated with that, is a one-world economy. Okay, Now, over which he is the monarch, over which he is the king. So the Antichrist manages in a short amount of time, to be able to control both the religion of the world and the economy of the world as well. The world will have to have gone probably through some sort of a crisis in order for him to come up and declare himself and to show himself for who he is and to say, this is the solution that I have for the world. And the world will run after him because the solution that he offers will seem to be a very good solution. If you And if you remember, part of that solution will be that every man... Woman and possibly child will have to be marked on their forehead and on their or on their right hand with his number or his name and that will only that, only by having that mark will they be allowed to buy and sell. People who refuse to have that mark will probably be killed for it, and at the least will not be allowed to buy or sell anything, which will ostracize them in every possible way. There will be one religion in this world where all the religions of this world meld into one or mold into one religion with the Antichrist declaring himself to be God. And he will demand the worship of every person on this planet. So here we see in chapter 18, we see the second judgment of God on this particular entity called Babylon. And Babylon represents this false religion and the false economy. And we saw in chapter 17, the judgment of God on the religious part of this entity. And now we see the judgment of God on the economic part of this entity. And we see that, if you if you remembered this passage that we've just read, you will see that everything has to do with buying and selling. And the people who were getting rich uh, through this system are weeping and wailing because of her destruction. But the uh, particular verse... And on phrase, and that I want you to keep in mind as we go through the sermon today, is found in verse twenty-three. And verse twenty-three simply says, "And the light of the candle shall uh, shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall he- uh, be heard no more at all in thee." And this is the phrase I want you to keep in mind. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, and for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. Okay? For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. In the end, there will be one huge deception taking place. One deception that will, that will encompass the whole globe. And the primary way through which the, the Antichrist will deceive the world, the Bible says, will be performed through false miracles, signs and wonders. And the person who is primarily responsible for these false signs and wonders will be the false prophet. You see, the Antichrist has someone who is on his side, someone who declares or becomes a spokesman for him. Much the same way that that John the Baptist was a forerunner to Christ and declared to everyone that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this false prophet will be there showing signs and wonders to deceive the whole world into believing that the Antichrist is the Messiah. And even the Jews themselves will be fooled at this time. The Antichrist will then usher in a one-world government, a one-world religion, and through this system, he will keep everyone on this planet bound. Bound. Enslaved. Into his worship. The whole world will be utterly seed. Only a few will resist and be saved, but those who resist will ultimately be killed for what they believe. And it seems sometimes when we look at our own society and we look at the world around us that this deception is rife at the moment. It it seems that every place we look in this world we see lies, deception, people running after all types of of uh, ridiculous religions and things that they believe will give them fulfilment in their lives. But, But almost in every case, they're deceived and they don't get what they expect. We see the vast majority of people in this world rejecting the gospel of Christ, rejecting Jesus himself. We see the enslavement of people to their own cultures to their own traditions, to their own societies, and to various addictions that have enslaved men from the beginning. Men love to serve, primarily themselves. And in serving themselves and their own sinful natures, the devil has a, a very um, fertile ground to work with. Because, you see, men are inherently sinful. So the devil knows man's weakness and he uses Men's weakness against themselves. And men think while they're free to pursue their lusts and their sins that they're actually free. But in reality, they're totally enslaved. The vast majority of people are enslaved in this world. Enslaved to every possible way. They are enslaved to their societies and what their societies dictate how their societies dictate they should behave, what they should think of, the things that they, that they should be uh, chasing after and the things that are important to them. They're enslaved to addictions left, right and centre. And you can probably rattle off at least 20 addictions that the common man is or has. The Bible warned us at least 2,000 years ago now that this would occur. And in the end times, this sort of addiction and this sort of enslavement will escalate until it reaches, reaches its culmination in false Babylon. Turn to Second Thessalonians chapter two as we read Paul's warning about the end times. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we'll read from verse 1 to 12. Now pay careful attention to what Paul is saying here. And he's talking about the end times. Okay. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. So this is speaking about... The return of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also encompasses our being gathered to him, which includes the rapture as well. That you, be not, uh, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us. In other words, there were false letters going out under Paul's name and the apostles' names during those days. As that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means that that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Now, just to stop there for a sec. Paul is simply saying here that don't be deceived, Christ cannot return until the Antichrist rises in power and declares himself to be God first. And this is exactly what happens in the book of Revelation that's explained. That the Antichrist will come, and here it it calls him the son of perdition, it calls him the man of sin to be revealed. And before he rises to power, it says there will be a falling away. Falling away, it's an interesting term, isn't it? The world will have to go through some sort of deception whereby the churches will be utterly deceived and there will be a falling away from the faith. Let's continue with verse 5. Remember you not that when I was uh, yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now, just, just quickly there, what it's speaking about is that at this particular stage, he's not, the, the Antichrist is not being revealed. He is not showing himself. Because there is someone that's stopping him. That word letting means to stop. It means to to withhold, to resist. Now, what it's saying is, and this is my belief, is that the Holy Spirit is holding this being back from revealing himself. And only when the Spirit pulls back on that resisting force, and that's when I believe the rapture will occur is that the Antichrist will reveal himself. okay? And then it says that wicked shall be revealed. And that wicked, once again, is a term for the Antichrist. And it says that his coming will be after Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now it says in verse 10, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they might all be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In the end, there will be one lie that they will be deceived by. And that one lie will cause many to reject Christ, reject The Bible and its teachings reject the gospel and follow after this false Messiah. Now I want you to notice two important truths from this passage. One is found in verse 7 and it says that the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Now this particular gospel or this letter was written before 90 AD. So it's around 2,000 years ago and Paul is very clearly saying that this mystery this, uh, uh, this mystery of iniquity was already working. You see, the devil was already working to deceive mankind and lure him away from the truth of the gospel. It was working in Paul's day when the church was just starting. So I'll tell you now, after 2,000 years, the reason there's so much deception and, and, um, and, uh, and confusion and everything else that goes on out there is because he's had 2,000 years to deceive people. 2,000 years of lies and deception. The second thing I want you to notice is that he who comes into the world after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders comes with, it says here, all deceivableness. He's a master at deception. And that people, because they would rather cling to untruths rather than follow the truth God says okay have him people would rather follow the lust of their own heart and that's what he will be offering them things that will continue to enslave them and that's where people really want to be they'd rather be enslaved in their sin than turn and be liberated by Christ that God says take him and it says they will believe a lie they will swallow a lie that will lead the whole world in one particular direction, and that is to destruction. Now, we don't know what specifically this lie will be, but we do know that it will be contrary to what the gospel is. It will be contrary to the Bible, and it will encompass the fact that this Antichrist will declare himself to be the Messiah of the world, and that will be one of the main uh, points in this lie. Now this occurs right at the end, and this is what God is judging at the end. What Satan has been now doing for the last two thousand years in deceiving the world, and he did it back in uh, in uh, the Garden. Remember, he deceived from he was a deceiver and a liar from the beginning. But he's been doing he's had a very special plan since Christ died on the cross because he's had something now to focus on. Politicians are very good at that, aren't they? They can actually turn something, uh, if if you've watched any ad, any political ad, they'll take something that someone said possibly 10 years ago and they can turn it and twist it and make it it sound really, really bad. Well, that's what Satan's done with the gospel. That's what he's done with Christ. And he's tried to manoeuvre people in all different directions away from that one truth. Now, why is it so hard to convince people of that truth today? People believe in all types of things. People believe in all types of Eastern mysticisms and, and, and the most crazy ideas you can imagine people swallow, but why is it so hard to convince them of the truth of the gospel? Have you ever wondered that? Why are our numbers so small compared to followings that people? People follow the most ridiculous things and that have no logic, that have no sense in them, and that offer no freedom... And yet they'll resist the gospel. Why is it so hard to convince people of the truth today? Why do they reject so much and swallow every lie and heresy the world has to offer them? Well, 2 Corinthians tells us the answer to that. It says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Very simply, the devil has managed to blind unbelievers. Completely blind. And it takes a supernatural work of God to give sight to someone who is blind, is it not? If there's something that we learn in the Gospels, when Jesus gave sight to someone who was blind, he gave them sight like that. And it takes a supernatural event to occur for someone to receive that side, to understand and see that this world that we live in is not the be-all and end-all, that there is something else that is unseen that we need to take very special account of. And Satan has been a master deceiver throughout the ages of blinding the minds of men. And how do you blind men's minds? You do it by confusing them so they don't even know where to look. That's probably the best way to do it. Offer them a thousand different ways, a thousand different paths, and deny as much as you can the true path. You trick them into chasing rabbits in all different directions, into chasing the things of this world, and offer them every possible alternative to the truth. You use things such as science to keep them deceived. You introduce things such as evolution to tell them that really they have no purpose in their life. That there is no reason why they're actually here. That they're only here because of sheer chance. And there is nothing really special about us other than we are smarter monkeys. So there is no point to chasing after life after death. There is no point in even thinking about a a personal God who created the universe because you're wasting your time and your effort in thinking about that. There cannot be. So they would rather believe things such as the universe creating itself. They'd rather believe that life came of its own accord, from nothing, by rain simply falling on rocks for a few million years. Hey, fair bit of faith involved in that one there, isn't it? But Yet Satan has used things such as science to deceive men and keep the curtains down and drawn against the gospel. Because as soon as you declare the gospel, as soon as the light comes on and you say, hang on a sec, you're not just an animal. You are a being created in the image of God with reason, with, with the ability to be able to love. You understand things such as, no, things such as nobility and honour. And integrity, the animals have no concept of that. Why is it you love? Why is it people sacrifice themselves for that cause? There is no answer to these things, and science cannot offer any answers. But yet people continue to pursue, continue to deny the fact that there is a there is one true God. So you deceive them by giving them many rabbits to chase and many burrows that are empty once they get there. You um, deceive them by using uh, apparently very uh, authoritative structures in society, such as science. You use, them, uh, you use entertainment to keep them continually anaesthetised, chasing after ways to entertain themselves, to gratify, gratify their flesh, so they have no time to think. They have no time to analyse where they're at. Keep them entertained. You can deceive them by promising them power and wealth and get them chasing after things they think are really going to make them happy. Just like, just like Satan tried to deceive Jesus, you see. He offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would simply bow down to him. He, he preyed on Jesus' hunger and said, turn that stone into bread. But Satan is trying to use our own weakness against ourselves because he knows that there is something inherent in every person and it's this thing called the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life that continually are our downfall. And he uses them over and over again. Satan has done a a particularly good job of keeping the masses chained and chasing their own tails in circles throughout the ages, giving them empty promises and delivering nothing. But in the end of the days, in the end, he will culminate all this deception through primarily one main avenue. He won't need science really anymore because you know something? When you're performing miracles up there, when you're doing things that are contrary to science and science goes, I can't answer that, then you automatically supersede science. He does it, the Bible says, by sorcery. Notice that verse I, I, I told you to keep a track of? For by those sorceries were all nations deceived. By sorcery. Now what is sorcery? Go back to Isaiah chapter 47 verse 8 for me. And we'll see that God's already judged Babylon in the past for her sorceries. Isaiah chapter 47, verse 8 says, And this is God speaking against Babylon. Okay, In the Old Testament, Babylon, who had, who had taken Israel captive and had them enslaved, God was now declaring judgment on Babylon. Therefore, hear now this. Thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children, But these two things shall come to thee in a moment in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, none seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me remember any other place where someone declared that they were I am that was the Lord Jesus Christ when someone declares I am they're saying that they are God verse 11 says therefore shall evil come upon thee thou shalt not know from whence it riseth and mischief shall fall upon thee thou shalt not be able to put it off and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly which thou shalt not know. Does it sound familiar, that passage? It should. Because the judgment of God in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 follows the same sort of line where, where Babylon says, I am no widow. Where Babylon says, I, I have my riches and I have my lovers and, and there is no one who can touch me, but God says, I will judge you in a moment. It's the same rebellious Spirit that is speaking at the end of the day as as was speaking in the kingdom of Babylon. And the word sorceries here is an interesting one. The word sorceries in Revelation is the word pharmakia. Pharmakia is an interesting word, isn't it? You've heard it somewhere before, haven't you? Well, it's the same place we get our word pharmacies from. And pharmacies are involved in the selling and uh, and uh, and manufacture of drugs. Okay, one way or the other. It was well recognised in those days, in back in Babylon's days, in the New Testament days, and in our days, that hallucinogenic drugs were connected with witchcraft and sorcery. You see. There were devotees of gods going throughout all, the, throughout all the ages. And what they would do is they would use hallucinogenic drugs or get completely blind drunk. And through that state of, of, of ecstasy that they would, uh, they would reach or through their, their depravity of their, of their drunkenness, they would, or they believed, make connection with their gods. It was a way for them to connect with the spirit world and to escape the material world. This was a very common practice in the apostles' days. You know, Paul says, be not filled with wine, but be filled with spirit. Be not drunken with wine or given to wine. Why? Because in Paul's days, it was very common for them to go to church, right into the temples and do what? They would, there'd be prostitutes there, and they'd be getting drunk there. That was their religion. And they'd use those sorts of things to commune with their gods. It was very common among the Greeks and the Romans. But today, where do drugs, drugs don't play much of a part in our culture, do they? We've overcome those sorts of uh, vices. Well, no, not exactly. Drugs are a problem in every culture in this world. There is not one culture, if you think about it, that is not addicted to drugs in some sort of way. And if you look at the dependence on, uh, on drugs in our society, you see good reason that, uh, that, that the world hasn't changed and people don't change. People used to get drunk um, and, uh, for religious reasons 2,000 years ago. People don't need a religious reason to get drunk these days. They just do it every week for entertainment's sake. Well, you can say that's a religion as well, can't you? People are dependent on alcohol to numb their pain, to give them a sense of of euphoria. People are addicted to things such as tobacco, prescription medication, party drugs like ecstasy, hard drugs like cocaine. Many of the people in this world are chemically addicted one way or the other. They use drugs to escape their problems and as a replacement for genuine relationship. A genuine relationship you can only find with God. A genuine relationship you can only have with Jesus Christ who can give them true meaning in their otherwise pointless lives. There's much noise and commotion being made over the last couple of weeks about a documentary. Uh, for the, Some of you may have seen the documentary. I know that it was a big talking point at our work. This, uh, this documentary about the life of Ben Cousins and his addiction to drugs. And the purpose of this documentary, apparently, was to, to warn uh, younger people, especially, about getting involved with drugs. not sure if it achieved its purpose. I didn't watch the actual thing. I heard a lot of talk about it, though, on the radio and at work. But from what I've, I've heard that it describes, in terms of his life, it describes he, the, the influence that his addiction had on his lifestyle and also on the people around him and there's a sombre warning that goes to, uh, to young adults and teens regarding this thing and this is the warning that becoming involved in these things will destroy your life and break your family's heart it will break the, the heart of those who love you the most It will cause you to do things that you would otherwise never contemplate. It will cause you to do things that are totally against your natural character. And character is sinful, isn't it? But drugs and dependence on these types of things will cause you to do things that are actually the opposite, will, uh, that take you two notches further in depravity. They'll cause you to do things such as stealing, to become violent, to disregard the more important priorities in your life, and where and where trying to get the next fix becomes the all important thing in your life. There are people who who work during the week only because they want to get to the pub at the end of the week so they can enjoy a good time with their friends and get drunk. That's an addiction. There are people who look, who work during the week just to get that money so they can enjoy themselves at the end of the week. That's an addiction. These things destroy people's lives. And this is what we see happening at the end of the age. At this, in this particular chapter, this is exactly what we see has happened. During his reign, the Antichrist will base himself, the Bible says, in a place called Babylon. Okay? Now, this might be the site of the original Babylon. We don't know exactly. It may be. It may not be. Some people are very adamant that it is the original site of Babylon because they say that God's judgment on it hasn't been completely fulfilled yet. It may be Rome as the final world power... Before the return of Christ. It may be another place. I don't know. But I do know one thing. This place will be the epitome of the world's economic system. This place will be the epitome of of the, 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 the religious system that will encompass the whole world. And through this system many will grow rich. And it will be the central place of economic policy for the whole world. Who's lived in different cities throughout their lives? Who's lived apart? Because I've only ever lived in Melbourne and I've only had tastes of other cities. But has anyone lived in different cities? Yeah, you have? Okay, is the spirit in every city the same? And the, the, what I'm asking is the types of people, the types of lifestyle, the types of things that people, things, people chase after, are they the same in every city? I don't believe they are. I believe it's, I've seen cities, and Kelly might, because she spent a whole uh, a whole month over there, is the, the type of are the types of people in, in um, remember that town you were you staying at where you saw those drunk men every day? Okay, is it the same type of place as Melbourne? No, very different, isn't it? And I think every every town, every main city in the world has a type of has its own particular flavour when it comes to the type of people that live there. And, and if you move to a particular city, eventually you, become, you come to think like the people in that city. It has a certain type of flavour or spirit, you might say, and people eventually become used to that spirit. Well, in ancient times, the great kingdoms of the world were centralised and epitomised by one main city. Okay, One city would, would uh, govern the way the people lived around, or around the world in those days. In the Roman Empire, the main city was Rome. In the Babylonian Empire, the main city was Babylon. And this, that's the place, that's the main centre where all the policies came out of in terms of kingdoms and, and kings making decisions about the way people were to worship, the way people were to live, the way people were to act, the laws that were, that were governing them a capital city sets the rules and regulations for the empire, nation, of the state, just as the decisions that come out of Canberra affect everyone in Australia. It, in one way or another, every decision that Canberra makes affects us. It affects us in different ways and from different angles. The spirit, just as decisions and influence of this nation come from Canberra and from our state parliament, so the spirit of a nation emanates from its main city. So it will be in the end. In the end, there will be one city where the Antichrist will be set up and from that one city, the whole world will be enslaved. It will tell the world how it is to worship, how it is to run, how, what laws are going to be governing, it, governing them, and it will tell everyone how they are to live. And God will judge that particular city. That will be the epitome of the Antichrist's rule over the world. Turn to um, uh, Ezekiel chapter twenty seven, verse one. And we'll see that we'll see God's judgment upon the city of Tyre or Tyrus. Ezekiel chapter twenty seven. I want you to keep in mind, Tyrus was a great city. It was a beautiful city. But when people referred to Tyrus, they also referred to all the lands that extended out from Tyrus that were under Tyrus' rule. And let's see what God has to say about Tyrus. Ezekiel 27.1 And the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Now thou, son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyrus. And saying to Tyrus, O thou that art situate at the entry of the sea, which are the merchant of the people of for many isles. Thus saith the Lord God, O Tyrus, thou hast said, I am perfect I am of perfect beauty. Thy borders are in the midst of the seas, thy builders have perfected thy beauty. Alright, so God is simply saying, This is a beautiful city, rich in every possible way. Now go down to verse twenty-four. And keep in mind the passage we read in chapter eighteen of Revelation. All right. Verse twenty-four says, "These were thy merchants, in all sorts of things, in blue clothes, embroidered work, and in chests of rich apparel, bound with cords and made of cedar. Among thy merchandise, the ships of Tarshish did sing of thee in thy market, and thou wast replenished and made very glorious in the midst of the seas. The rowers have brought thee into great waters." The east wind hath broken thee in the midst of the seas, thy riches and thy fares, thy merchandise, thy mariners, thy pilots, thy culkers, and the occupiers of thy merchandise, and all thy men of war that are in thee, and in all thy company which is in the midst of thee shall fall in the midst of the seas in the day of thy ruin. The suburbs shall shake at the sound of the cry of thy pilots, and all that handle the oar the mariners and all the pilots of the sea shall come down from their ships. They shall stand upon the land. And they shall cause their voice to be heard against thee and shall cry bitterly. And, sh- and shall cast up dust upon their heads. They shall wallow themselves in the ashes. And they shall make themselves utterly bald for thee. And gird them of sackcloth. And they shall weep for thee with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. And in their wailing... They shall take up a lamentation for thee and lament over thee, saying, Which city is like Tyrus, like to destroyed in the midst of the sea? When thy wares went forth out of the seas, thou fillest many people. Thou enrich the kings of the earth with the multitude of thy riches and of thy merchandise. In the time when thou shalt be broken by the seas in the depths of the waters, thy merchandise and all thy company in the midst of thee shall fall. All the inhabitants of the isles shall be astonished at thee, and their kings shall be sore afraid and they, sh- and they shall be troubled in their countenance. The merchants among the people shall hiss at thee. Thou shalt be a terror and never shalt be any more. Now, isn't that an amazing prophecy that God made for Tyre? But isn't it interesting? God is about to judge Babylon at the end with the very same. God has judged cities in the past. Cities that have influenced the world in the same way Tyre had the same way Babylon had the same way that now that in the future, that Babylon will, God judges them, judges cities that influence the world, that make people rich. And why should He judge them? Because they influence the way men think. Cities, great cities such as these, bring men into enslavement through riches. Through following after or chasing after things that God doesn't want people to chase after. And I want you to take note of the reaction in, in Revelation chapter 18, the reaction of the men when Babylon is finally judged of the Lord. Do they admit when God judges um, uh, Babylon that they're wrong, that they've been sinful all this time, and they repent of their evil deeds? No. Do they see their utter desperate state? No. Do they glorify the God of heaven for for being a righteous judge on Babylon? No, they don't. We don't see them repenting at this stage. What do we see them? We see them behaving just like a drug-addicted person who when you take away their source of addiction, when you take away their source of drugs or whatever it is they're addicted to, just cry like a baby. This is what they do. They behave like people who are mourning their loss because they can't get what their hearts crave for anymore. Have a look at Revelation 18:9. Look at, look at the different types of people and how they respond. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, look, shall bewail her and lament for her when they see they shall see the smoke of her burning. Verse 10. Standing afar off for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour thy judgment has come. Okay, verse 11. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. Hmm. Verse 14. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, And thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. Verse 17. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like under this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein we were made rich. All that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour is she made desolate. From kings to sailors were made rich by her. And what do they cry for? They don't cry because they love Babylon. They don't cry because because she is precious in any particular way. They cry because they can't get what they want anymore. They cry because their addiction can't be fed anymore. That's what they're crying for. According to the scripture, the great men of the earth are the ones who represent her and deal in her commodities. Minerals, clothing, artworks, building materials, perfumes, food, animals, machines of war, weapons and men. They mourn because they've now lost their source of wealth. They've lost a thing which their heart really craves. They want to be rich. They want to stay rich. The addiction is there. They've lost their source of addiction. They love Babylon only because of what they could give her. Let me give you an interesting example. Let me talk about a particular country in the world now who many other countries are relying upon just like that. There's a situation at the moment that has the world depending on one country for many of their survivals. It's the same country that buys the majority of of Australia's iron, ore, gas, coal and other minerals. If this country were to decline, Australia would be in a complete ruin. Very plainly. Australia would be lamenting very much the same way these people were lamenting. Because this one country has kept us out of recession... And it's keeping us going in terms of our, our, our lifestyles over here. This country is called China. Okay? This, China is set to become the fastest and is the fastest growing country in the next decade. China has, at the moment, millions and millions of people going into the cities. Okay? into its cities, and it's building like never before. And the fact that they're building all these new cities... Do you remember the Industrial Revolution? Those of you who have done much studying the Industrial Revolution, what happened during that, those times in England and those places? What happened was you went from a rural economy, people working the land and being farmers and taking care of themselves and, and making a bit extra to sell at their markets and things like that, to everyone moving into the cities because industry was there, that's where wealth was and that's where prosperity was. So you had this huge influx of people in the cities. Well, that's exactly what's happening in China now. It's going from a rural economy to these mega cities starting up. They reckon in the next twenty years there's going to be a hundred mega cities there. That's cities that have over a million people each. Okay, that'd be the most in the world by far. How many mega cities does Australia have? Is it three? Okay, well, the next uh, 10 or 20 years, China's gonna have over 100 of those mega cities. And it's building them at the moment. And the fact that it's building all these high rises and, and, and all these things, it's actually keeping Australia going, right? If China falls down tomorrow, uh, I can just see the, 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 um, our politicians throwing dust on their heads because there's going to be no other source of main income that Australia can go to. China has already outstripped America as the world's largest car producer. You thought about that? America has been the world's biggest car producer for decades and decades and decades, and now China has, within the space of about 20 years, less than 20 years become already outstripped America and will outstrip America and China put together in the next 10. Australia is dependent on China. And Australia is hoping that China continues to grow. I'll tell you that now. Because if if China stops growing and goes into recession, then um, uh, the world is in a desperate state. Australia would be in a desperate state because all that revenue, all those taxes that come from companies selling stuff to China is feeding and keeping our economy going today. But what's happening? What's happening here and what will happen in the future is that men love wealth, money, power, and they are addicted to it. They become addicted to it. And what we see happening in Revelation where God judges the, the whore of Revelation is that they show their addiction to these things. Turn to first John chapter 2, verse 15 for me. And we'll close up with this passage soon. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Now listen to John's warning here. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard, that antichrist shall come. Even now are there many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. We are in, if that was true of John writing it 2,000 years ago, it's more true today. There are many antichrists in the world, and an antichrist is simply someone who denies Jesus Christ. And all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these are things that the antichrist will continue to bind men with. The lust of the flesh are the things that gratify our human nature, our fallen human nature. The lust for power, the lust for wealth, the lust for entertainment, the lust for for addictions and things of those nature are going to continue to plague mankind. There is only one who can set men free that's Jesus. The addiction of the people in this world to the world and the ways of the world is exactly like a person who's addicted to drugs. Exactly the same picture. When you see someone addicted to drugs and the lengths they go to to acquire those drugs and what they sacrifice to get them, you have a wonderful picture of what every man and woman in this world is already doing in everyday life. Just as an addicted person will betray the people who love them for temporary pleasures of the world, so the people of this world have no idea they're addicted to the ways of Babylon already. The world has been set up already. Addiction, the addiction to Babylon, and and the world is already addicted to Babylon before it's even set up. It's just like having leprosy. And I shared this with Brother Eddie yesterday. Leprosy is a a, a really bad disease, okay? But people don't know uh, how leprosy works. The problem, you know, when when you think of leprosy, people automatically think of bits and pieces falling off you, right? Okay, that isn't because of the disease. That isn't because the disease causes bits and pieces to fall off you. It's because you lose sensation and feeling in your extremities, especially. And what happens is you injure yourself. You know, the reason that you don't have fingers and things falling off at the moment is that when you hit your finger, you feel it. And you don't hit your finger the second time and the third time and the fourth time. If you didn't feel anything, you would continue to hit your finger until you managed to damage it. And this is what happens to people who have leprosy. They don't know what they're doing, what they're feeling, so they continue to injure themselves, they continue to get infections, but they don't feel it, see? And and bits and pieces fall off. You lose bits and pieces of yourself and you go along without realising what's going on. And this is the greatest danger of leprosy. It's becoming insensitive to pain and feeling. And the same thing has occurred to the people of this world. The people of this world behave exactly like lepers. They are insensitive to what's actually happening to them. And the world draws them in a particular direction and they injure themselves, just like someone taking drugs. It injures them spiritually, emotionally, physically, but they have no sensation. And the Bible simply says that that those who sin will die. God simply says it's a nice simple rule that says if you sin, you die and death is a result of sin in exactly the same way that when someone has leprosy, Just as you continue to injure yourself time and time and time again, bits and pieces fall off you and eventually you will die. The people of this world are totally insensitive to the ways of God. They are totally insensitive to spiritual truths. So what they do is they reject the truth because they're insensitive to it. But they are on a course to death without realising it. They don't realise that Babylon is slowly killing them. The devil has the world thoroughly addicted. Addicted to every possible thing you can imagine. And my, my question to you this morning is, are you addicted? What are you addicted to? Because in all probability, you have at least one type of addiction. Is it money? Is it riches? Is it security? Security can be an addiction too. That you find your security in something other than God. Is it politics? Is it religion? Is it science? Is it sex? Is it sports? Is it fame? Is it your career? Is it your society? Do you have an addiction today without realising it? Are you behaving like a drug-dependent child toward your Lord and Saviour? There's one thing that I heard about that particular um, uh, uh, documentary. And it was that his father, Ben Carson's father, would um, go out with him while his son was going out to get drugs. And he'd sleep out with his son for fear of losing his son. He'd sleep in a bus shelter. That's what his son was willing to do to his dad because of his addiction to drugs. Do we treat Jesus the same way? Has your love of this life and this world caused you to betray the one who loves you so much that he died for you? What do you put Jesus through every day? Where do you bring him? Remember he's with you. Where do you bring Jesus every day? Where do you bring Jesus in your mind? Where do you bring him physically? What do you attach yourself to in this world that you force Jesus to become attached to as well? There's one thing that we know about people who have addictions and it's this, that we learn very quickly, that they skew their priorities in life. Somebody who has an addiction has a very hard time trying to to determine what's the most important thing for me to do first, second, third, and fourth. They've become all skewed. Instead of loving their families, they love their flesh so much, they they cause their families to go through all types of hurt. And And the list goes on and on and on. Instead of obeying the law, they break the laws. Instead of worrying about their health, they worry about getting a fix. Instead of saving money and being being, uh, uh, mature about things, they spend all their money and then have to go and steal more. People who have addictions have problems with priorities. And one of the things I know that the Bible teaches very clearly about Christians who are mature is that they have their priorities in place. If you have an addiction to something, the odds are you don't have your priorities in place. What are your priorities today? Do your priorities in your life betray who you actually are? So you can go around all day saying, I'm a mature Christian. Everything's all right with me. But then when you stack up the priorities and what you put first, second and third in your life and you realise how much time and effort you spend chasing other things, does it betray that you're actually not doing what you're meant to be doing? That you're not really who you say you are? What are your priorities today? How are you treating your Lord and Saviour today? If you're a Christian, have you been freed only to run back to the addiction that you had before. Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. There is a a very definite, a definite order that the Bible gives us about things we should be putting first, second and third in our lives. Things that take priority over, over things of this world. My question is, how focused are we on the things of this world? And are they robbing God of his glory? Are they robbing, are they robbing you of, of full life, which Jesus actually offers you? What is it that you're running after today? Is it another fix of the world to keep you senseless to the spiritual world? And if you're not saved today... There is one who can save you from your addictions. There is one who can liberate, just as he was able to to cure the leper, to give sight to the blind, just as he was able to cure the woman who who had a flow of blood for many years. Jesus can actually heal people of their addictions. He can truly free people who put their trust in him. The question is whether you can put your trust in him, whether you will put your trust in him today. If you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord and Saviour, guaranteed you have an addiction. You have an addiction to the world and you won't choose Christ because you'd rather be with the world than with him. So you have an addiction. But Jesus came to kill you from that disease, to give you a new heart and a new body. Christians, be wary that your priorities are right. Because in the end, we have to give an account of ourselves as well. The Bible says we need to be very careful about the way we live our lives. We are to be growing in Christ each and every day. And you know something? If you go through your whole life and then at the end have to be ashamed as you stand before his throne, what life is it? What's the worth of living that life? Yes, I'm saved. How wonderful for me. But if I have to get into heaven by the skin of my teeth, only to be ashamed in front of everyone when I stand before Jesus, only to be ashamed of what I haven't done for him because I've spent my life running after my own desires and my own lusts, what good is it? Don't you know that we have an eternity to live, an eternity to live for Christ And in his presence. And now we have that much time to make good. To do the things that he wants us to do. To make a difference. Are we going to waste that time? Think about it. Redeem the time because the days are evil. There is no point us chasing the things of this world. In the end, we'll only be disappointed. And we'll disappoint the one who loves us more than we can understand. Let's not be ashamed that day. Let's live for him now. Let's give him every moment of our lives. Let's put everything else second to him. Let's not be the church that, that, that Christ said, you've lost your first love. I want to I be able to stand before Christ one day and say, Lord, I put you first in every part of my life. Can you say that today? Honestly. If you can't, repent and turn back to him. Put him first. Don't put your career, don't put money, don't put anything else before him. Because in the end, you're only hurting yourself.